believers from the time of the first century on have had a longing for the return of Jesus Christ for his church, as it's always been felt that Christ in his return would put an end to human suffering, this longing seems to be, over the course of history, proportional to the difficulties that people are facing at any one given time. When difficulties go up, the longing for Christ's return seems to go up. When things are pretty, going pretty well, we don't seem to think about it too awfully much. But there has been a longing since the first century. It wasn't until the beginning of the 19th century, though, that the study of Bible prophecy really came into prominence. And that doesn't mean that it's any less significant than any other area of theology. It's just that the church typically takes on one issue at a time. That's the way it's worked throughout the course of church history. Early on in the history of the church, in the first few centuries, the issue was the humanity of Christ. Oftentimes we think it might have been the deity of Christ, but actually the humanity of Christ was one of the first issues that the church had to tackle. Then the deity of Christ. And then the deity of the Holy Spirit shortly after that. A little bit later in the times of the Reformation, we get into the 16th century, the doctrine of justification was one of the major issues. Eternal security was a major issue at that time. Then also, a short, short time after that, spiritual gifts became a, a serious issue. And today it seems as though eschatology, or the study of the last things, is one of the issues that the church is working through. It's because some of the other issues were settled first that we could work through issues in eschatology or the study of the last things and one of the major issues with respect to the study of the last things is interpretive method if one uses a literal grammatical historical method and by literal i don't mean literalistic by literal i mean just letting the scriptures speak for themselves letting the scriptures speak as as any other form of literature would speak to you or as i'm communicating with you today understanding figures of speech metaphor, simile, all these things. That's a, that's a literal interpretation of Scripture, just letting it talk to you, as opposed to a literalistic interpretation of Scripture, which sometimes those who take a literal interpretation are, are accused of doing. But if I was to say this morning, that on my way here to, to church, it was extremely foggy. I don't know if you went through it or not, but it was extremely foggy down in Clear Lake when I was coming up. Now, if I was to tell you that a car just came flying past me in the fog, you would probably understand me to be saying that that car was going really fast, probably too fast for the conditions, because I'm speaking to you in a literal way, and you would understand that figures of speech are used in that way. But if I was speaking literalistically, you would have to think that the car was literally flying off the ground. You see, we don't have a literalistic approach. When Jesus said, I am the door, he was saying, I am the passageway from you to the Father. You've got to go through me to get there. So that's, that's a literal interpretation. Now, if you were to take a literal interpretation and consistently apply it throughout the Scriptures, then you're going to come up with a good eschatology. The reason people had such a weird eschatology up until fairly recently was because they weren't taking a literal interpretation of the Scripture. They were taking an allegorical interpretation. That's why somebody could read a passage that says that Christ will rule for a thousand years. And they would say something, well, I know it says that, but it doesn't really mean that. You just want to pull your gray hair out when that happens. You know, it's, it's amazing. We have to let the text speak for itself, and that's one of the major issues that's been discussed with respect to eschatology over the last hundred years. How are we to look at the Scriptures? And if we look at it and let the Scriptures speak to us, then we'll come up with, I think, a good, um, a good eschatology. Many are actually fascinated by eschatology today. Some, perhaps, too fascinated, maybe, the study of the last things. 
Some are so fascinated with the study of eschatology that I'm afraid they might be in danger of losing their balance in the Christian life, losing their balance with respect to their outlook of the world, and I don't think that's healthy at all. Personally, I'm a little nervous about those television programs that focus entirely upon eschatology. You know what I'm talking about. That never mention anything else because I think those programs are a bit unbalanced. And you'll be unbalanced too if that's all you ever watch. We need to get the full orb of God's self-disclosure, not just one aspect of it. And that can be with any aspect of, of theology. If all you ever focus on, the only thing you ever focus on is, say, the study of the Holy Spirit. We're expected to learn the Bible from cover to cover. And then I'll cover a great many things. And eschatology is one of them. But if you're focused only on eschatology, and I do have to mention this because from time to time it happens and people do get a little out of balance. If you're focused only on eschatology, then I think you're going to have a bit of a problem with respect to your spiritual life. We need to get the full disclosure of God, not just one aspect of it. If you're to be well-rounded theologically and if you're to mature as a Christian, we need to have the full counsel of God. Now, with all that in mind, we are going to turn to a passage today that's going to speak about eschatology. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58, the passage that we'll speak about today, that we'll teach today, that we'll discuss today, is a passage that gives us some more information about an event called the resurrection of the church or the rapture of the church that was mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 7, verses 13 and following. This is a passage that was read for our scripture reading. This morning, it's at the time of the resurrection of the church, which is the next prophetic event on God's calendar. The next prophetic event is the resurrection of the church, also known as the rapture. The term rapture is actually a Latin word, raptura. It comes from the Latin translation of in First Thessalonians chapter four, which is the verse that they will be caught up together with them in the clouds that Alex read just a little while ago. That's where we get the word rapture from. More technically, it's the resurrection of the church. That's the next prophetic event on God's calendar. There's nothing that has to be fulfilled prophetically for that to occur. And that's why believers of all generations, from first century on, felt like they might be in that generation when the Lord comes back. Paul thought that. Apparently, he thought it was possible for him. Martin Luther certainly felt like it was possible that in his generation the Lord could come back. Many Christians over the course of time have felt that way. It's the next prophetic event on God's calendar. And it's at that time, the resurrection or the rapture, it's at that time that we who are believers in the Lord Jesus will receive our immortal bodies, our resurrection bodies that are fit for heaven, about which Paul has been speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. That was our study uh, last week. We will return to heaven after the resurrection of the church, will return to heaven in resurrection body, where, among other things, Christ will then evaluate us at the judgment seat of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We'll study that soon when we get there. The next prophetic event is the resurrection of the church. Could happen before we finish today. Could be another hundred years. I don't know. And I know that the whole idea about you can't know the day or the hour, but you can know the season. Well, we can get really wrapped up in that. I don't know. I'm not ashamed to tell you I don't know when the rapture is going to come. I'm not going to make a prediction as to when the rapture is going to come. When our Lord was asked when he was coming again, he said, I don't know, which is one of the mysteries of how the God-man could say, I don't know. Beware of people that say, that I don't know the day or the hour, but I can know the season, and we're in the season. I know what they mean. But that season could be a really, really long time. Don't set a date. 
And don't say it's, there are 99 reasons why the rapture is going to happen in 1999, because there's also 97 reasons why the rapture was going to happen in 1997. And I don't mean to mock. I, I really don't. But be careful. We need to be ready for the rapture to occur today. You also, listen carefully now, you also need to be prepared to go to heaven today if you were in a car wreck or you were diagnosed with cancer or something else. So yes, we need to be ready, not just simply because the resurrection could occur today, but because you may check out for some other reason today or tomorrow or the next day. But after we're resurrected, we receive a resurrection body, our passage today is going to tell us that happens instantaneously. You know, from one second to the next, we'll be transformed from a mortal body to an immortal body, just instantaneously. We'll cover that in a minute. After that happens, then we'll be in heaven. The entire church will be in heaven, and we will undergo an evaluation called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that evaluation is not going to be to determine our eternal life. That's set. You're already there. That evaluation is going to be to determine what you did with the time that you were here, the deeds done in the body, whether they were good or worthless. How did you spend your time? And it's, a, it's an evaluation, thank the Lord, it's an evaluation that's given on the whole. It's not an evaluation for any particular sin that we might have committed. Moses, for example, was deemed to be faithful on the whole. Yet at the beginning of his ministry, he exhibited unfaithfulness and telling God, pick somebody else. I'm not worthy for this. I can't do it. Pick somebody else. Let's send my brother. Don't send me. He also had a great act of unfaithfulness at the end of his life. When he didn't speak to the rock like he was supposed to, he beat the rock and said, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? The Jews that he was leading gave him a hard time for 40 years. They grumbled against him and complained for 40 years. And Moses had about 40 seconds of unfaithfulness, yet he wasn't deemed to go into the land. Because to whom much is given, much is expected, and Moses knew better. But it was a great act of unfaithfulness on Moses' part, yet... Moses is said in Hebrews chapter 3 twice to be a man of faith. Hebrews 11, a man of faith. He was evaluated on the whole. And that gives me hope and comfort. Doesn't it give you? Because we all stumble and fall from time to time. But if we stumble and we fall and we get, confess it and repent and get up and keep moving, that's what God's looking for. Are we faithful on the whole? And part of faithfulness is coming back when we fall. And Moses did. And I know you have too, and I have too. We have all stumbled. There's nobody perfect in this room. We're worshiping somebody right now that's perfect, but none of us is perfect. So we'll be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ on the whole, whether the deeds that we did in the body were good, agathos, which means good of intrinsic value, or phallos, which means worthless. Did we waste our time on the whole? Did we waste our time here on earth? And again, don't panic. All of us have wasted some time, to be sure. But on the whole, did we live a life of faithfulness? Now, why that's going on in heaven and how that's going to take place over a seven-year period, I don't know, other than the fact that in heaven, time is different from what it is here. Because all believers have to be evaluated, and it's going to happen one at a time. It's not a group evaluation. It's not like those projects in college now where you get a group score. No, it's one-on-one. You get, it's, it's you and the Lord looking you right square in the eye, and hopefully we'll all hear a well done. That's what we want to hear. And again, I want to stress... You're not in danger of losing your salvation there, but you are in danger of losing eternal reward. Something that's hard to explain because heaven's a place of incredible bliss to begin with, perfect happiness to begin with. So how do you add the perfect happiness? I don't know, but it's going to be great. But while that's going on on earth, on, on heaven rather, on earth, if you, will you allow me, all hell's breaking loose. The tribulation, also called the great tribulation, is, under, is, is taking place on earth, and it is just a terrible time here. Now, you won't see that. 
But that's the time that's outlined, for example, in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, where all these judgments occur and what God is doing there while we're in heaven receiving our reward or our evaluation, God on earth is working on his people, the Jews. And life is miserable down here. I mean, it's absolutely miserable. And what he's doing is he's doing everything he can to get the attention of his chosen people. They've rejected him for so long, he wants to give them one last opportunity to say yes to him. And so in order to give them an opportunity to say yes, he makes their life miserable. Isn't that interesting? That tells me that most of the time we can't pass the prosperity test. We do much better turning to God in times of disaster than we do in times of prosperity because in times of prosperity, we don't need God. In fact, as a nation, I wonder if that's why, by and large, we've turned against him now because we've had so much prosperity for so long that we, in many ways, don't need him anymore. At least that's what we think. But you travel to other countries that don't have nearly as much prosperity, and you sit in one of their worship services, or you talk to one of the, uh, an individual believer on the street or at a conference, and, man, they are jazzed for the Lord because they don't have any place to sleep that night. Just to have a pillow for their head is a great blessing for them. They're on their knees asking God for their next meal. So that's what God does to his people, the Jews, because he loves them in the tribulation. That seven-year period, that shortened seven-year period, that's a terrible time here on earth that you will not see. I, that's one thing that I can promise you. If you're sitting here today and you've trust, personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, you will not be here during the tribulation. You'll be in heaven. But it's going to happen here on earth. And incredibly, there are some Jews that turn back to their Messiah at that time. Not all. In fact, I couldn't even say most. But many do. And then, at the end of that seven-year period, the next prophetic event on God's calendar is the second coming of Christ. This is different from the resurrection. In the resurrection, Christ comes down, but he never comes to earth. He meets us in the air. And the second coming, he comes all the way down. And that's the point in time that he comes as the righteous judge. The first time he came, he came as a humble servant. The second time he comes, he's going to come as a conquering king, a righteous judge. And he wipes out all the enemies of Israel, all of his own enemies, and goes into the millennial kingdom, which will be a thousand years of perfect environment, a thousand years of perfect government. I wonder what that'll be like. I do think some of us will be here for that. Many of us will be in heaven. Some apparently, some church-age Christians apparently are here, ruling with him in the millennium. Not everybody, but some. At the end of that thousand years, you'd think everything would be wonderful, wouldn't you? Jesus Christ has been president. Jesus Christ has been king for a thousand years, but it's not. Even under perfect rule, even under perfect government, still doesn't really work out because people are people, and people have sinful natures. You know, we, we approach presidential elections, and I do too. I'm not, I'm not saying this in third person. I mean, so much. I, I approach presidential elections, and I typically have a preference. Because I do see a difference between candidates. I, I think if you look closely, you can see a difference in their views. Maybe not every, everything, but certainly on some pretty serious things. And you think, oh boy, if my candidate could win, especially a presidential election, then my country's going to be a lot better. Well, maybe it wouldn't. Maybe it wouldn't. Because it's still going to be filled with people that have Olsen natures. I wish my candidate would win. <laughs> I renounce them then, just so I can find out. But... But no, I know because prophetically in the future, <clears throat> Christ is going to rule for a thousand years and people are still going to rebel against his leadership. 
at the end of the thousand years, Satan is going to stir up trouble for one last revolt against God. In perfect environment, he, he, he can get enough people to follow him that he stirs up one last trouble. Christ puts down that, that rebellion, and then the end of time comes. There's a judgment for all those called the great white throne, all those who have rejected him, and then a new heavens and a new earth are created, and then we go on into eternity. And that, that's a bird's eye view of God's eschatological plan. I, it's not a detailed view by any means, but, but it's a bird's eye view. There's more to study about the doctrine of last things, and we've done that before, but that's the basic outline. But our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58, does help us to fill in a few details about the rapture of the church, what I've also been calling the resurrection of the church this morning, and the receiving of our resurrection bodies, and the connection of those events. Now, this is the key point. The connection of the rapture of the church and the receiving of the resurrection body with the concept of victory over death. That's what Paul speaks about as chapter 15 comes to a close. I have read, and perhaps you have too, I've seen more than a few studies by university psychology departments typically that will say that public speaking is the number one fear that people have. There was a North Carolina study that was done in the 80s, the very early 80s, that said public speaking was the number one fear that people have, followed by death as number two. There have been some studies that actually showed public speaking, number one, I forgot what was number two, and death was number three. And I think that's a bunch of baloney, personally, and, and I have read many philosophers about this, and Many, many people who were probably very well versed in theology, one of them is named Sergeant Seinfeld, who had a television program at one time. <laughs> he said a recent survey stated that the average person's greatest fear is having to give a speech in public. Somehow this is ranked even higher than death, which was third on the list. So you're telling me that at a funeral, most people would rather be the guy in the coffin than have to stand up and do the eulogy. <laughs> I think he's got a point. I think people can pretend that death's not their greatest fear. But if I was to tell you, you either have to die or you've got to get up here and give the closing prayer, you're probably going to get up and give the closing <laughs> prayer today. I suspect that death is the number one thing that people fear. And if you're not a Christian, it ought to be the number one thing that you fear. Now, in verses 50 through 58, we see Paul speaking about a victory over death. A victory over the fear that we might have of death. In verse 50, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and when this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the application verse is in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. 
As we stressed last week, this present body that we occupy is not fit for heaven. It's an imperfect body. It's a body with a sinful nature. It's a body of corruption. It's a mortal body. And a mortal body, Paul calls it here flesh and blood, a mortal body is not fit for immortality. It's not going to work. You can't take a mortal body into eternity with you. That's why Paul says here that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood is representative of this current earthly body that we have. But for heaven, we need a body that's appropriate for a heavenly environment. We don't have a lot of revelation about our resurrection body or the heavenly body, but we do have some. We know that there's sufficient evidence to conclude that those who have died, having placed their faith in Jesus Christ, at this particular moment, even though they don't have a resurrection body, it's not their final form, they do have some sort of interim form. They're not just disembodied spirits that are just meandering throughout the universe. They do have some form, and that form is recognizable. And that form can communicate. We get that from such passages as Luke chapter 16, or the passage of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Lazarus and the rich man, he, they were, they were, Abraham was recognizable, Lazarus is recognizable, the rich man is recognizable. So even those who are not in, in paradise in, this, in the Old Testament sense, they were even recognizable as well. So we know that the, the, the interim body has some form, it's just not the final form, and we don't know a lot about it, but we at least know that. And we at least know it's a form of a body that can experience perfect happiness, perfect bliss. People take certain drugs, certain medications perhaps sometimes because they're feeling really down and they, they need to get a, a charge. And some of these medications will, will put you in a state of incredible bliss for a short time. And then I'm told you come way down off of it and you need another one. And you need more the next time to achieve that state of bliss in eternity. That's nothing compared to what you're going to experience all the time. And you're never going to come down off of it. And that interim body is going to be able to experience that bliss, but it's not the final form. We know from Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, that our resurrection bodies will look like our Lord's resurrection body. Which means, among other things, that we'll be able to eat in eternity. And I, I don't know all the where's and wherefores about that. But I know that we'll be able to eat in eternity. Our Lord ate in resurrection body. We'll be able to converse and communicate with others. We'll be recognizable. We'll be capable of travel, but it'll be in a different way. You remember our Lord walked through a locked door, a solid locked door in his resurrection body. And that could have been because he was still the God-man, but it, it, more probably because the, the resurrection body is going to have a different molecular structure than this one has here. It makes sense to me because if the whole universe is our playground, we're going to have to be able to get there pretty quickly, although we'll, we'll be there for eternity. So I guess we could, we could take our time and still make it. <laughs> One thing we know from the book of Revelation is that we'll be capable in our resurrection body of something we're not capable of right now. And it might surprise you what it is. We'll be capable of perfect worship in eternity. Perfect, unhindered, unending worship in eternity. Now, now I have to admit, if, if you said worship, eternity is going to be one long church service. Some of us might say, well, <laughs> it's their third alternative here, you know. <laughs> No, nah, no, it's not like that at all. No. You know, when we're face to face with our Lord, I don't think we're going to want to do anything else but fall down at His feet and worship Him. But there'll be other things because everything we do in eternity is going to be an aspect of worship. 
It's going to be absolutely awesome. And you know one thing that will happen in eternity? We're going to sing in eternity. And every one of our voices will be Andrea Bocelli, or even better. We'll all have heavenly voices, perfect voices. And what a sound that heavenly choir will make. It'll be absolutely incredible. I doubt that it will be described in heaven as a joyful noise or a joyful sound like it is on earth. We just do it the best we can with the voices we've been given, but everybody's going to have a perfect voice then. And we spoke last week briefly, ever so briefly, but it's worth a mention today. We don't know what, a, what the appearance of age our resurrection body will have, but if it's like Christ, it's been considered that perhaps the resurrection body might appear to be about 33 years old in, in its form. And that means that little, little ones who have gone to be with the Lord, they, they probably receive a grown-up resurrection body. Those of us that don't look like we did when we were 31, our resurrection body will probably look that way. But somehow God's going to still make us recognizable. And I don't think we're going to have to wear name tags. I, I don't think he would do that to us in heaven. You know those little name tags that you peel off, you put them on your coat, and they kind of flop over. So by the time you get halfway through the meeting, nobody knows who you are anyway. And they have their wife introduce themselves to you so that you can hear them introduce them back. It's not going to be that way in, in eternity. I know that trick, too. I've never done it at church, though. So. <laughs> this resurrection body is going to be awesome. There's much we don't know about our resurrection body, but one thing we can be dogmatic about is this. Just as God provided to us, us with a, a body that's appropriate for time, for right now, he's also going to provide us with a body that's appropriate for our heavenly existence. Now, it's going to be this same body, actually. It's just going to be a transformed body. People might ask sometimes how that could happen. Well, somebody's been in the grave for 2,000 years. God is perfectly capable, as one that made man of the dust in the first place, he's perfectly capable of reconstituting your molecules and putting you back together in resurrection form. In the next two verses, we learn that the transformation from earthly to heavenly body occurs in an instant it's not a process that takes a period of time. It occurs instantaneously. Paul says, in a moment, verse 52, in the twinkling of an eye. That's pretty fast. A twinkling of an eye is really fast, instantaneously. Not all of us will go through physical death. Most of us will. The overwhelming majority of humanity will. But there will be one generation that doesn't. And when that trumpet sounds, when the, when the resurrection occurs, those who have died already will receive their resurrection bodies an instant before the rest of us, or the rest of those who are on earth at the time. And then those who are on earth will receive their resurrection body as well. First Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us that those who have died in Christ will receive their resurrection body just a slight instant before the rest of us will. So we know that about the resurrection. That's, that's something that Paul adds to what he said before in this particular paragraph. But I'm not so sure that's even the key idea to this paragraph. The key idea to the paragraph is victory over death. The hope that we can have over the number one fear, for the North Carolina study, apologies to them, but the number one fear that people really have is what's going to happen after this. And because of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, because of what he did for us, we don't have to fear death. And granted, there are instincts that we have. If you see a car coming at you, it's not like you just stand there and say, oh, I'm not afraid of nothing. Well, you need to get out of the way of the car. There's instincts. I'm almost drowned three times. Every time I was trying to get back to the surface. Because there's an instinct of your body to live. But we don't have to be afraid at the end of the day. We don't have to be afraid if God should call us home today or tomorrow. I don't have to be afraid if God chooses to call somebody I love home tomorrow either that's a believer in the Lord Jesus. 
It's one thing to fear for yourself, isn't it? But it's another thing to say, boy, is this, to fear for someone else. Now, if they're believing in the Lord Jesus, you don't have to be afraid about that either because we find out as this passage moves on that there is a victory over death. The reception of the resurrection body is proof that death has been conquered. Not by anything that we've done, not by finding the fountain of youth, not by some incredible medical discovery, as great as those might be. No, death was conquered by Jesus Christ. Which means that we can live this life without fear of what comes next. And we can confidently serve God while we're on this earth. Knowing that there's meaning and purpose, that everything that happens here, and that we don't labor in vain. I can't imagine being an atheist that thinks that this is all there is. And as soon as this is finished, then I become an infinite nothing. Nothing. Not just somebody that's in the darkness that remembers what happens in the past, but they would think that you just become an infinite nothing at all. No wonder one of them concluded, why not suicide? Camus, that's what he said, why not suicide? If that's the way it is, and that was a logical conclusion to his philosophy. Just kill yourself now if there's no future because there's no past either. Now, I'm not recommending that. That was Camus. He was an atheist. But Christians don't think that way. Because of what Jesus Christ did for us, we can have victory even over death. We get to verse 54. But when this imperishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Verse 54 reveals that the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, will be fulfilled. Isaiah 25, 8 reads this way. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all of their faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. There will be a time, and it was prophesied way before Christ, that Christ would be victorious over death. And then verse 55 is a quotation from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Those are two rhetorical questions. It's almost as if Hosea, speaking for the Lord, is mocking death at that point. Oh, death, you think you're such hot stuff. Where is your sting? Where is your victory? Well, it's gone. Again, not because of what anybody in medicine has done, as great as that might be, but it's gone because of what Jesus Christ did. He conquered sin, and therefore he conquered death. The sting in death is because of sin. That's that's how we got this in the first place. When Adam took the fruit from the hand of the woman, everything started to die at that point, including Adam. He doesn't die physically for another 900 years, but he began to die spiritually immediately. The sin problem is what's caused death. And I'm not talking about individual personal sins as much as I'm talking about Adam's original sin. That's what brought death into the world to begin with, and that's why death stings. That's why it's perfectly normal to have a tear run down your cheek, even at the funeral of someone who you know is a very committed Christian. Because it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be the norm. The norm was supposed to be everlasting life, but when sin came into this world, then something that wasn't supposed to be here happened. And it is painful. But thankfully, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve, but at a funeral for a Christian, we grieve through tears, knowing 
that we do have a hope for the future, a confident expectation for the future. So don't apologize to anybody if you've wept at a loved one's funeral. Sometimes people get things way out of proportion. I knew a young girl who lost her sister in an automobile accident many, many years ago. She was in the accident as well, but she survived. Her sister, who's sitting right next to her, did not. Her sister, I believe, was about seven at the time. And she went to a church, not this church, but she, she was going, attending a church at that time. And it had been a couple months since the accident. Someone came up to her and began to talk to her about the accident. This young girl started crying when she remembered her sister. And the person said, your sister is in heaven. You don't need to be crying about it. Now, that's cruel. That's cruel because she loved her sister and she missed her sister. She knew her sister was in heaven. She had the hope of a resurrection and a reunion with her sister. But we don't, act, we don't do acts of cruelty like that. The girls turned out to be a really wonderful lady, but not because of that comment, but because of the love of Jesus Christ. And I hope none of you would ever misinterpret what we're saying today as, with respect to victory over the death as that we can be cruel to people when they've lost loved ones. No, no, no. But we can be confident. And what I'm saying is you can have confidence even through the tears because the sting, the ultimate sting of death has been removed because of what Jesus Christ did. Now, we receive a partial fulfillment of that here on earth, but you'll receive the ultimate fulfillment, the maximum fulfillment of that, when we receive our resurrection bodies. No more death, no more pain, no more tears. Now, again, we have an opportunity to experience some of the shadow of that right now, right this minute. But ultimately, in eternity, it'll be a reality. No more sting in death. It's over. The sting and death came because of sin, and the sin issue has been solved by Jesus Christ. We have really nothing to fear. And all the thanks go to God. All the thanks go to Jesus Christ. No other human being. Certainly no communicator of God's truth. We're just dandified messenger boys. It's the one that we're telling you about that receives all, that deserves all the credit. And then the conclusion... And I might say this before we, we get there because we're almost finished today. In verse 58, I think what Paul's doing is he's, he's actually drawing a conclusion to almost everything he said before from an applicational standpoint. You remember what's going on in Corinth? They had all these problems, just a laundry list of problems. They were arguing over who baptized them. They, they, were having a, they had a hierarchy when it came to spiritual gifts. They were suing each other, lawsuits against one another. Marriages were falling apart. There were some that had apparently... Uh, welcomed in the, the, the fornication of some of the temple worship there into the church, or at least not into the church specifically, but into their own lives. They had all kind of problems in Corinth. They were really messing up when it came to the Lord's table. So Paul has been trying to correct their behavior the whole time. And now I think he's got one final shot at it. This verse 58 is a behavior verse. It's an applicational verse. So we understand that there's a victory over death. So we understand that Jesus Christ took care of everything. So, so what for my life right now? And at times when I'm not attending a funeral, does this have any application for me when I'm not attending a funeral? Well, yes, it does. And that application comes in verse 58. Now listen again. We read it a moment ago. Therefore, now the therefore is, is concluding the paragraph in a specific way. And I think the whole thought of the chapter, perhaps even more generally, and maybe even what's going on from the first chapter, but at least this paragraph in this chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, isn't that interesting? This is a group of people that had given Paul more problems than any church that he founded. In fact, if you started tallying it up, this church at Corinth may have given Paul more problems than all of the other churches combined. 
And yet, as he begins his conclusion to the letter, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren. And this isn't just Christian talk, you know what I mean? We call each other brother and sister and you don't really mean it. But, but he means it here. My beloved brethren, what should we do? And then he gives a series of commands, actually. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Don't be tossed to and fro by every negative thing that happens in your life. And if you're a human being that's living on this earth at this time, there's going to be some difficulties next week for you. I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but there's going to be some things next week and the week after that and the week after that. And that's why Jesus says, don't worry about those things. They'll take care of themselves. It's going to come without you worrying about it. You focus on today. You can plan for the future, but focus on today. And what Paul is doing is he's concluding much in the same way that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. Stand still. Be steadfast. Don't go anywhere. When times get tough, don't run away. I'm talking about spiritually. You don't have to run away. Stand right there. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Keep it up. The devil, Satan, would love for you to quit. Don't be discouraged. There is a meaning and purpose to your life and the work that you're doing for God, whatever it is. Publicly, privately, inside the church, outside the church, and all of your ministers for Christ in that sense. Keep doing it. Always abounding, not just a little bit, abound in it, in the work of the Lord. Why? He concludes, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The work that you do in the Lord is not in vain. There's meaning and purpose in this life, even in the midst of suffering. With all the problems in Corinth, they didn't need to fear death. With all the problems that we face, one thing we need not fear, provided that you've trusted Jesus Christ, personally trusted him to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, salvation being by grace through faith apart from works, provided you've done that, one thing that we don't have to fear is death. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reception of the resurrection body is proof that death has been conquered, which means that we can live life without fear of death. We can live life without fear of what's coming next, and we can confidently serve God while we're on this earth, knowing that we don't serve in vain. <laughs> 